Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 107. On today's show, we talk about Amazonian rock art, street food at Pompeii, and the effect of modern trash on archaeological sites. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome everybody to the Archaeology Podcast Show. Show. Show? Yeah, show. I always say podcast, but it's actually the Archaeology Show. I guess it's (laughs) TAS. So some of you who have listened to this show for a long time may remember probably about a year and a half ago, I used to do a radio show down in Carson City, Nevada. And a lot of times I would just talk about current archaeology stuff in the news. Occasionally I'd have a guest and occasionally my friend and comedian Brian Woods would come down and just basically we would bounce things off each other. You know, he's not an archaeologist. He's a science enthusiast. And we would talk about news articles and just kind of have a conversation about them as basically an archaeologist to somebody interested in the subject. Well, we're going to kind of revive that for some episodes of the archaeology show except with the big twist is my wife and fellow podcasting host rachel roden is going to be that person but she's also an archaeologist so it's going to be a little bit different dynamic but we're still going to bring in some news items and stories that are current and because this is archaeology even if you're listening to this four or five years from now or 50 years from now it probably is still current because we're just reporting on stuff that's either being discovered being reported so unless there's new information it's probably still a very relevant episode so rachel welcome to the show thank you i'm excited it's fun to talk about current discoveries in archaeology discoveries might not always be the right word sometimes it's bringing focus to something that has already been known by other cultures but either way it'll be fun to take a look at stuff that is showing up in the new cycle so new to new to us basically yeah sure so the first one we're going to talk about I just pulled a random article that has uh, pictures, but I mean, literally everybody reported on this thing between November or so of 2020 and still even now in we're recording this in mid-January. This article is from December 4th, 2020 from a website called thisiscolossal.com. I don't even know where I saw it. I think I just pulled it from Apple News because I saw it and they had some fun pictures. But uh, 
it's basically talking about what people were calling the Sistine Chapel of the Ancients. And this particular article, just the headline, in case you want to try to find it, we'll have the link in the show notes. But uh, new photos from the, quote, Sistine Chapel of the Ancients, unquote, reveal details about prehistoric Amazonian life, like a fondness for bungee jumping. So first off, let's talk about this. That headline in itself implies several things that more than likely aren't true. First, (laughs) Sistine Chapel implies something religious, although I know they're just going for artwork on a ceiling sort of motif because Mm -hmm. they're saying Sistine Chapel, but also bungee jumping. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit later, but there's so many things wrong with the headline of the article just to start out with. Yeah, I'm not really sure why we have to compare a beautiful landscape of prehistoric rock art to a Renaissance era painting on a ceiling. That comparison in my mind doesn't really need to happen, but it is journalism in the media. And I guess they need to grab people's attention in whatever way they can. So they chose to make that comparison. Yeah. But the pictures are fantastic. So mm-hmm. that is definitely something that we can't, can't deny. The pictures are amazing. Yeah. And we, actually briefly discussed this, but we didn't really get into it because none of us had the primary research or the ability to really dig into it. But we have a podcast called the Rock Art Podcast with rock art expert, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we have discussed other things like this before. So the the first thing I'll address on this is just the rock art itself, just looking at it and some of the pictures that are in this article that's linked in the show notes. Again, you can find other articles that probably have other photographs, but Although they probably don't because they're more than likely pulling them from the original research because people didn't go down as journalists to the Amazonian rainforest and and (laughs) take these pictures. Well, actually, they credit a guy by the name of Jose Iriarte. Mm. Um, They credit him with these images. And I did go to his website and kind of poke around a little bit. He's definitely an archaeologist. He does a lot of work in the Amazon and he does appear to be like a legit archaeologist. I didn't see anything about this site in particular on his website, but he Mm -hmm. definitely is doing, you know, real good archaeology work. So the pictures do seem to be, you know, pulled with permission and by an archaeologist. The first thing I will note about these drawings in particular, these pictographs, and for those of you that don't know, pictographs are typically pictures drawn on a rock or otherwise surface, usually a rock surface, and petroglyphs are etched into the surface. So they're pecked, they're etched, they're carved, something like that. And you could actually have a petroglyph that is painted, right? I mean, you see those all the time, a petroglyph that has been filled in with paint. Right. But this, these, just from looking at them, these are mostly, I haven't seen any examples of anything that's actually been carved. These were drawn onto the rock surface. And depending on where they're at, whether or not they're in the sun all the time, these are all red as well. But they say in this initial article, which they must have pulled from the pulled from the research, that some of the paintings date back about twelve thousand five hundred years. It says when people first arrived on the continent. That's also a pretty loaded statement because there are definitely yeah. sites in South America that are contentious a little bit. Monte Alban, I think, is one of them that are like thirty to forty thousand years old. Now yeah. they're not. They're they're controversial sites, but I think it's a little presumptuous to say 12,500 years. You could say at least 12,500 years, but not like that's when people first got there. Yeah, I do wish that we could have found an actual scientific article to go back to and check this kind of stuff because they didn't give any reason for that date or why they feel like they were able to date back to 12,000 years. So yeah, uh, I 
am immediately skeptical of it because how would you date this? I guess by artifacts around them. Is that the best way? So that's a good question. There's a lot of ways to approach the dating of rock art. Uh, One of the first ways is just with the images themselves. If the images are truly old, some of the rock art images, and and you can't assume that these are all 12,500 years old. They might span 12,500 years, but maybe some of them were done 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And some of them were done a thousand years ago and 5,000. So you got to date, you got to first catalog every image. And then you've got to look at the image by itself and in conjunction with other things. And then you've also got to look at, well, you know, a lot of these things look like they're drawn over the top of other things. Uh, which ones are actually over the top of each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones are, w- which would make the ones underneath inherently older, even if that older only means a month older, mm-hmm. it makes them older, right? Because something else was drawn on top of them. But you look at the images themselves and a lot of really early rock art across the planet is just abstract images. I don't see like swirls and and lines and, you know, zigzags and stuff like that. There's some of that here, but not a lot. There are a lot of really solid images here that are just actually depicting something. Mm -hmm. And some of them are, you know, look like to us to be not depicting anything at all, just images, just art or something like that. But there's animals. I see animals and I see buildings uh, in one case and I see, well, what look like buildings to me. Again, you look through the lens of your own uh, cultural upbringing, but some of these look like depictions of, say, squarish buildings, which is kind of crazy. But if you look at some of these animals and if any of them can be determined, like I see one that looks clearly like a, a large turtle or at least a turtle. I can't really tell how big it is. Were turtles in this area now? Uh, I mean, it's a rainforest, so yes is probably the answer to that question. But you can go back to a time when, uh, if this is a thing, I don't know because I'm not a you know zoologist, but when did turtles first arrive in this area? You could go back and say, well, turtles weren't in this area prior to the end of the Ice Age, which I don't know what the Ice Age looks like in South America because it would have come from the other direction. But you could go, say, up here in North America, you would say the Ice Age ended... You know, about ten to twelve thousand years ago, but there wasn't truly ice-free area, and we still had a lot of water in places up all the way until about six or seven thousand years ago. So things changed quite a bit. So you can look at this and look at some of these animals and say, well, either a when did they arrive in the area according to the fossil record, uh, or the just the the record, you know, like bones and things like that on sites. Or B, when did they leave the area? And they either could have left because of climate change or they could have left because they're extinct now. We have lots of rock art images of megafauna in the North Mm. American sites that depict animals that no longer exist on this planet. And we have a pretty good idea of when they went extinct. So we know that we don't know exactly when the rock art was drawn, but we know it was drawn before then. Yeah, that's true. So it would be interesting to see if there are any extinct species depicted on this because that would definitely help narrow down a date range right i wonder too because it's a pictograph and it's painted on i wonder if the material they use themselves might have some organic material in it that is potentially datable as well yeah like i said early on this is all red and there's sites down in southern california coastal southern california that are made with red ochre and ochre is from a plant Mm -hmm. And plants are organic and organic things are made of carbon Mm -hmm. and you can carbon date small samples of that paint. Now, did they have red ochre down here? I have no idea. Did they have something else that made red? 
that was plant-based? Maybe, but some cultures around the planet also used like an iron-rich soil to make their paints. Mm -hmm. And the iron-rich soil would not be carbon dateable because it's, you know, iron rich. It's not, it's not, it's not organic. So uh, you can only really carbon date stuff that's organic. However, using some things like x-ray fluorescence and some other techniques, you could chemically try to deduce how old or at least how possibly old these things are. Um, It's never really exact or great though. And another thing you mentioned is the final, really the third way to kind of date this stuff is associated artifacts mm, but that yeah. gets that gets real tough yeah because especially down in the amazon i mean there's still relatively what we would call uh, primitive or prehistoric tribes like today mm-hmm. and when you look at stuff that could have been left behind from a from a ceremonial standpoint a religious standpoint you know maybe they come here and and commune and do some sort of religious practices or whatever maybe they even just visit who knows but they leave stuff behind you can try to date you can't really date the rock art but you can date the times that people were here mm-hmm. and try to correlate that with the rock art so it's like when we date historic sites we find a historic archaeological site you'll find a tin can and a bottle and a ceramic plate with a maker's mark on it and you look at the date ranges all these and when they inter- where they intersect is more likely the use period or something for this particular site even if this stuff was dumped here from another site same thing here we got to look at all the things we've just talked about and said well where do these dates start to overlap where can we start making chunks of time that makes sense that these things could have been created yeah i definitely would be interested to see if that helps to narrow in dates at all because i was reading about in about this the site location and apparently it's quite a ways into the jungle like like Isn't everything down there quite a ways into the jungle? Like you leave the city and you're in the jungle. Well, true. But like, it sounds like it's like a four hour trek through the jungle just to get to, just to get to the site, which is why these, you can't call this undiscovered because obviously the local people, indigenous people, Colombian people have known that these existed, but they're just now becoming known to the rest of the world because of the difficulty in getting there. Um, and that actually is an interesting thing that the article brought up. And I, I want to read this because I thought it was interesting that the article or the the writers of the article had to sort of add this addendum onto it. It says, this article originally framed the prehistoric art as a discovery, which was inaccurate considering Colombians and indigenous peoples have known about and studied the area for decades. They owned up to it, which I think is really cool. And it also is such a great, thing for western people and white people to keep in mind Mm -hmm. that just because it's new to us does not mean that we discovered it we're not we're not sailing the seas like the explorers of the old days and discovering things that other people knew about for a long time we're not we can't do that anymore that's not that's not a culture that exists anymore or it shouldn't be and clearly this article was framing it as if archaeologists and white educated people showed up in the jungle and discovered this when Mm -hmm. clearly it was known already to the local people. So I thought it was really cool that they owned up to that. And it also throws a little bit of perspective and light on the way that we as archaeologists need to be treating the things that we quote unquote find. Right. Yeah. It's a, chances are somebody knows about the thing you just found. Right. Mm -hmm. So what, what truly makes it a discovery, you know? 
uh, they could have said something like it it was you know discovered by or not discovered but analyzed finally for the first time by western science or something like that who knows mm-hmm. but i just think it's great that the like you said the article owned up to it i mean this is definitely not a scientific news outlet i mean this is colossal.com i don't even know what the hell this is but <laughs> It's not scientific. It's not anything. It's one of those news sources that I don't even know if they write their own original articles, really. A lot of news sources will just, quote, quote, news sources. They just aggregate stuff that other people wrote. And mm-hmm. you got to go real deep to find the original source material. And we're not reporting on the original source material because it's behind a paywall, which is a real huge problem in archaeology mm-hmm. and all the sciences is most of the stuff that we want to read. If you want to look at the original resource, it's behind a paywall and you've got to go find it, which... I mean, to some to some extent, I get people have to be compensated for doing these sorts of things. And, and, and just so you know, it's not the archaeologists that are holding it behind a paywall. It's the place where they had to have it published yep. is holding it behind a paywall. Yeah. So this is really interesting. It'll be interesting to see how all this comes out. And the, the reason this came back out in the news, as I think I mentioned at the beginning of this, was because a documentary is coming out or has come out probably by this time about this site. So that'll be interesting to see, which is also something that's shocking and disturbing in its own right, is when this first came out in whatever journal it was released in, uh, it was not talked about. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear about it. And I'm pretty pretty caught up on latest archaeology news and stuff like that, at least big, important discoveries like this. And I say discovery in the terms, again, of science, not of cultural knowledge. But the fact that now a movie's coming out about it or a documentary series or whatever it's going to be, the uh, it's called Jungle Mystery, Lost Kingdoms of the Amazon. So it's probably a small part of a bigger thing. But yeah, that's just sad that we've got to wait till that comes out, which I'm really... I want to see this article because I want to see if uh, how much they talk about because the article headline, as I read earlier, says like a fondness for bungee jumping. I really want to know if that (laughs) bungee jumping thing was just determined by somebody looking at this or if the researchers really looked at this and have any archaeological evidence behind that. Because here's what you need for bungee jumping. (laughs) You can't just tie a rope to your waist no. and jump off a cliff. It makes... No. You'll break your back. No. You'll die. Yeah. Bungee jumping is done with highly, highly, highly flexible line, as you probably know, because otherwise you'll snap your neck, you'll snap your back, you'll do something. So there might be an image that looks like a rope with a person on the end of it, but that could easily just be in this two-dimensional plane. Just because we're looking at a wall does not mean top is top. Right. And does not mean bottom is bottom. And, And if you're looking at a line with a person at the, quote, bottom of the image, that could just be a person holding a rope or holding a branch or holding a tree. And mm-hmm. this is how they decided to depict it. We don't know with their, their view, their scientific and cultural worldview, what direction they were trying to draw this on. Yeah. We look at it and we see top down, left, right, but they may not have. And I, I found another article about it from the same place that said that some of the areas are so high up that they are only able to study them by drone which makes you wonder how they were able to access them. And if they were accessing from above, they might have been hanging upside down drawing these things, which would completely change the perspective. So, yeah, all that to say, I am very skeptical of bungee jumping in ancient times. Give me a break. People were barely they were they were trying to survive. They're trying yeah. to survive in an unforgiving land. You there's you have to do a lot of convincing to make me think that 
they were bungee jumping. Yeah, a lot. and and to wrap up this segment. Uh, something else you reminded me of when you said some of these were too high up and we could only see them by drone. Again, that's our modern. Uh, our modern perspective on that they could have come from above they could have suspended themselves by ropes and things like that which they probably had access to mm-hmm. but also you got to go back to the geology what did this look like was mm. there a lake here at the time i don't know anything about the geology but was yeah. the was the stuff that was done higher up actually at eye level if you were sitting in a boat right you know what's the what's the case there's plenty of places especially like i said five to eight thousand years ago or so in north america where there were a lot more big lakes and i mean, look at nevada itself lake lahontan used to cover almost the entire state of nevada that's why it's called the great basin because it's a sink of water that doesn't drain to either ocean or the gulf of mexico and it's called the great basin because it's a huge basin and at some point Point, right after the end of the last ice age when all the uh, glaciers started melting and all the ice started melting it filled up that entire area like i said nearly the entire state of nevada parts of utah and oregon were filled with a lake and you can see the lake edges and along those lake edges there's rock art there's sites and uh and all kinds of stuff that uh, was accessible because it's a lake mm-hmm. you know so well there's lots of things i mean there even could have been tall trees that Sure. They were able to climb up in order to draw the rock art or whatever. Yeah, so maybe like even trees that don't exist now, of course. And exactly. Maybe yeah. even species that are extinct. So Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's it for this segment. We're gonna come back on the next segment and talk about something else back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to segment two of this episode of the Archaeology Show. And now we're going to go to the other side of the planet, a place I've been twice and Rachel has been to once, is... Pompeii uh, in Italy. And the article is from NPR, actually, and it's called What's on the Menu in Ancient Pompeii? Duck, Goat, Snail, researchers say. but So what this is, is uh, researchers uncovered, again, probably months, if not years ago, Mm -hmm. a, what they're, what, what, what the, I should say, journalists are calling a fast food eatery. Now, Pompeii was a city that had I mean, it was a metropolis. It mm-hmm. was a, it was a metropolitan area. It was fashionable to go there. It was multicultural. People from all over the Mediterranean, and and all over like Southern Europe. There probably it wasn't Europe at the time, of course. In the early part of the 
first millennium and last part of like the like Pompeii was covered in what 76 BC uh, AD uh, or something, something like, like that. that yeah yeah so the previous several hundred years yeah people would come to Pompeii and it was just this you know multicultural metropolis of a city and if you walk around Pompeii today you can really tell that the streets are small uh, people are close in I could imagine it just full of people mm-hmm. and guess what people got to eat yep and people also want to have businesses to make money. Money was still a thing back then or or definitely a thing at that time. So it stands to reason that somebody was making food and selling it to passersby. Mm -hmm. And what they found in this article, and it looks like, I don't know if this was repainted, but the picture shows some some pretty cool paintings on there. I've been in some of the Pompeii buildings back when I was in the Navy, back in the late 90s, that actually still had images drawn on the walls. In fact, the one I think of was a brothel, actually, that they showed us on the tour. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, Yeah, because they had colorful images of sexual positions because there were so many languages being spoke there right you just pointed to what you wanted to do yeah (laughs) yeah that's right that was so interesting and it made me realize how much how how many different cultures and people that this city was serving it's it was truly multicultural and yeah that's really interesting to to think about yeah so this thing that they found here i guess i guess it's apparently called a thermopylium um, I oh. see in the little imagery here, but a fast food eatery, basically, basically a food stand. Yeah, uh, a food stand made out of stone with different pits and basins and things for uh, for holding different kinds of foods. I'm assuming somebody was either cooking it right there or cooking it in the building behind. Well, I know you read the article, and you, but you probably forgot they found the bodies of two people in mm. the stand as well, which. So they're like feeding people like on the Titanic as it's going down. (laughs) Right. Hey, Ash is coming down, but you got to (laughs) eat. No, um, that I think that just is what makes Pompeii so interesting on so many levels is that these people were caught in a moment and they had no time to react or do anything really. And a lot of them just didn't understand the gravity of the situation. So Mm -hmm. people were truly standing on the street, you know, trying to make a buck so that they could feed their families and serving food to people who wanted it. And then in an instant, their lives were over. So the thing that really intrigues me about this is that this is such a common everyday sort of discovery that's made the news. And it's not even a discovery because it even says in the article here that uh, food stalls like this were common in Rome at the time. Mm -hmm. And researchers have discovered 80 in Pompeii. But this is the first one that was basically uh, fully excavated in its entirety. And it just makes you realize how much Unless you really go there and study it or you you read the primary research and you read some of the books about this stuff. But we only hear about the big fancy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. We hear about the big frescoes and the houses and you go to Rome. I've I've taken tours of Rome and you go through the Colosseum and the, uh, you know, you go you go to all the big things and. You don't hear about and talk about all the just daily life stuff, which is the things that really kind of interest me, I guess, from mm-hmm. an archaeological standpoint, because, I mean, everybody can go to the Coliseum and see that. I mean, you've seen mm-hmm. it in countless movies. You've seen it all over the place. And sure, it was fun. And they did some cool things there. Well, and some horrific things. And some but, horrific things. You know. <laughs> yeah. Cool from a 2,000 years ago standpoint. Right, right. But, uh, no, I totally get what you're saying, though. It's it's so interesting to see daily life. Yeah. Because you just don't get a whole lot of really spectacular examples of daily life. And I think one of the reasons why they 
chose to fully excavate this is because the the paintings are just so detailed and so beautiful. And I wonder if that comes from the preservation because of the ash and everything. I'm, I'm guessing it does. Obviously, it, mm-hmm. it must be because of the preservation. But it does make me wonder if it's a particularly pristine example of what one of these street or food vendors would be like. Yeah. It definitely is interesting food because I think one of the things we read is that they're talking about maybe turning it into a, a food vendor location for, you know, the modern times for modern tourists and visitors to mm-hmm. the area. But I definitely don't think I want the uh, things that they're serving. <laughs> they were serving <laughs> snails. Mm, no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, people eat snails now. So, um, but yeah, it looks like they probably favorite. also had duck and, and possibly yeah. even, uh, well, it says pig and fish. I mean, mm-hmm. we eat pig. You know? Yeah, that's true. It looks like they had a whole bunch of different things. Although they don't mention, they show an image here of uh, what looks like a rooster, but they don't mention chicken or anything like that. So, but more than likely eggs. I don't know if they were eating. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they're eating duck, they're eating they're eating chicken too. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say no to that. Mm-hmm. And, and then crushed beans found in a jar, likely used to modify the taste and color of wine. I'll tell you what, when my wine's not tasting good, the first thing I think of is not, <laughs> let's throw some beans in there. <laughs> That's not. Uh, yeah, I I can't imagine why you would want to add beans to wine. That's fruit. <laughs> sure, add fruit, make a sangria. You know, like sure. there's there's plenty of things you can do to modify wine. But I've never thought to add beans. Now it makes me want to go like find an ancient recipe or something to figure out what that exactly would taste like. Screw that! I'm just gonna throw some refried beans in my pinot. <laughs> oh, so like. not just beans? Well, you're gonna fry them. Well, refry them. Whatever. Yeah, it's the 21st century. So. <laughs> We got to do it differently. Oh my God. That's ridiculous. I just, I like, I like the thought of, uh, you know, different things being painted on the outside of this counter as sort of a menu, again, multicultural area that would be consistent with other things found in Pompeii as we discussed. Uh, but also it could just be people don't like blank walls. They had artists, they had people that could do that. And why not just, uh, cover it up? Because there's also a painting of a, sea nymph riding a seahorse on the, <laughs> on the counter on another side. You know, like you do. <laughs> I know. Like, why not? That seems so super elaborate for like yeah. what's probably a lower class food counter. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the other stuff I'd want to know about just from, again, really diving into this ancient life aspect is what would it have been like to go up and order something there? Because they did say they found like a bronze uh, drinking bowl. I, I assume a drinking bowl means soup. Like, otherwise, why would you have a drinking bowl? Yeah. Unless you drink water out of drink the bowl. Beer? beer? I want a bowl well, for yeah, my probably, beer Probably not drinking wine. a lot of water in Pompeii. Yeah, probably not. But, I mean, Pompeii had lead pipes, which killed almost everyone uh, <laughs> at a young age. But Well, actually, I think the ash killed them. Oh, so. yeah. Well, that was the final death. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was there, that was one of the things that, the first time I was there, it's one of the things that really stuck out to me is... Pompeii was one of the first places to have running water be pretty, um, like a plumbing system, mm-hmm. be pretty common amongst people, not just the rich people. Mm-hmm. And they did it using pipes made out of lead. And a lot of people died. A lot of lead poisoning. In, at, in like their 30s and 40s because of a lifetime of lead poisoning. Right. Yeah. So, wow, that's crazy. They wouldn't even know that the thing that yeah. was so ingenious to them was causing their right. death. That's- so, so the people that drank more of that lead sourced water mm-hmm. would have died early and the people that just drank beer and wine all the time probably lived <laughs> a lot longer. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Check yeah. in the box. 
But again, one of the things that I'd want to know is how, how were people served this food and how did they eat the food? Did they have, was it common to carry your own bowl and utensil oh, in that good, kind of time period? Good question. You know, I mean, I wouldn't see why not. We didn't have as much, it wasn't as much of a, a disposable culture back then mm-hmm. just because of the, the nature of the construction of the things. So why not carry around your own bowl or plate and why not carry around your own utensil to mm-hmm. eat it with? Because I, I can't imagine they would have handed you something unless you were eating it there. Did they have yeah. tables set up? Did they have, you know, was it a stand and don't stand too long, don't stay around too long kind of thing? I mean, yeah, we like have those shovel now. the food in and walk away kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Like I've seen like those like those pizza counters and stuff in like New York City and stuff where they just don't even really have tables. You just eat your slice and you go. Mm-hmm. So it could have been something like that. Well, and it could have been fast food that you didn't need to put in something as well. Like a hot dog? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, an ancient (laughs) hot dog made of duck and goat. Apparently, something that's not going to get your hands all messy. I mean, I say that now, but we eat plenty of food that gets our hands messy. It irritates the crap out of me. (laughs) But like, like a sandwich style thing. I'm not saying that they had sandwiches, but maybe bread. They did. Maybe it was bread with something on top of it, and then you could just you know take your pita and walk away. But this was prior to the Earl inventing it, so I'm not really sure. You know, I knew you were going to say that. The (laughs) second I said the word sandwich, I was like, this guy. (laughs) Because nobody had thought to put meats between breads until, you know. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure that's a myth, too. It probably is. Yeah, so, anyway. So. No, the other thing that really struck me about this is you started talking about the elaborate paintings on the on the counter, basically, and and you, there's a picture. We'll link to this article, of course, but there's a picture showing just the counter, right? But there's walls all around it because it's just one small part of this massive city. And I can only imagine that like every wall in the city must have been covered with these beautiful paintings because oh, yeah. if they took the time to paint a freaking food stand, <laughs> <laughs> they must have painted all the walls, any wall that they could. And I bet it was just this colorful, vibrant, amazing place. And I, I wish that... And we've had this discussion before. Sometimes archaeology is presented in just artifacts, sort of like a collection of artifacts that are disconnected from Mm. the people that use them and the places that they're in. There's a part of me that wishes we could see like a full reconstruction of what a Roman city or town would look like with the the paintings and just everything, because I just can only imagine how vibrant it was and the, the bits that we have left over, the crumbling you know, facades of cities and stuff like that. It's just not, it's just not doing it justice. And this might exist. And if it does, I really hope somebody sends us a link or lets us know if there is like a reconstructed Roman town somewhere. Cause I would just, if I was going there, I would a hundred percent put that on my list. Cause mm-hmm. I want to walk through a city that is just the way it was 2000 years ago. That, yeah. that is like, that just sounds like the most amazing experience to me. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I guess I would eat snail too, like if I, I was mean, in that situation. When in Rome or Pompeii is the case. Maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now here's yeah. a question. If they brought this back with original style foods and eats, which I would think would be super cool, like open this lunch counter back up and serve the things they were serving back then. I know. know. I'm like doing a total 180 from what I said before, because I was like, ooh, snail, goat. I don't know what snail tastes like. Maybe snail's not that bad. Well, I've had escargot. That's snails. Yeah, it's like real oily. It's pretty gross. At least the one time I had it. Duck is greasy and oily, but it's like butter. It's delicious. Well, duck is delicious, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it would be a super interesting experience to eat the actual food that they were eating. At least one step towards that, that full immersion that I was talking about Mm -hmm. before. 
Yeah. I would definitely love to experience that. One of the images on the counter, they say in the in the NPR article here, appears to be a picture of the lunch stall or the food stall itself as oh, like a yeah. logo or trademark. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I don't think so. Like, I think that might have been, I mean, that seems weird, right? To yeah, take up that much does. real estate just to paint the thing on the thing. Yeah. But I think more likely it was probably for when it's closed. And maybe they had, this is just my oh, own thing, yeah. but maybe they had like, you go into a market pretty much any open air market anywhere in the world, especially in say third world countries and places like, not that this is a third world country, but places like uh, China and places like that, where these open air markets are common, they roll the shutters down mm-hmm. and they lock that place up tight. Yeah. So who's to say theft was definitely a thing back then. Who's to say they didn't have a way to close this up somehow Yeah. where the lunch counter portion here was still visible and you could say, oh, well, when I come back tomorrow, I'm going to grab something to eat because yeah. this is clearly a lunch counter. That's such a good point because I was trying to figure out why they would put a painting of their own food stand on it but you're right like if they're able to close it up so you can't see the inside mm-hmm. and don't know what's there when it's not open then yeah it totally makes sense to have an image on the outside of what it is so that yeah. makes total sense to me and of course they're probably closed on the weekends right only Monday <laughs> through Friday so what is a weekend I knew you were going to say that <laughs> the Downton Abbey quote yeah uh, it's my favorite yeah. <laughs> so they probably uh, they probably were open seven days a week if I had to guess yeah because sure. why not yeah so well the, the city wasn't closed on any day of the week, I would guess. So why would the food? Well, you like to take days off unless they had employees. But I would imagine the people that ran this thing lived right behind it. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that the one image is upside down? So there's a rooster that we talked about, but then there's also two mallard ducks right next to it. And the ducks are upside down. I I wonder why. Isn't that weird? Are they? Yeah, it even says it in the description. The ducks hmm. the ducks next to the rooster are upside down. Yeah, they are upside down. That just seems like such a weird detail. See, that is interesting. Yeah. I, I can't really think of a reason for well, it except for artistic purposes. The rooster is right side up because part of it's missing, but I'm guessing it shows the rooster laying eggs so you can get a, roosters a nice... Roosters are boys. Yeah, but roosters fertilize the ladies. <laughs> oh, here we and go. And this is a male-centric society, so they want to show the result, the the, the real progenitor of the eggs there. <laughs> and then the ducks are dead, so they're clearly upside down and dead. Yeah, I'm not I'm not hanging with you on this explanation, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can see the duck now. I didn't really see that at first, that it was upside down, but it's definitely... I mean, uh, they could be hanging. Maybe, yeah, maybe they're hanging upside down. I don't know. I don't know. It would be interesting to. Ju- it's interesting that they painted them that way. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, yeah. it makes me wonder if uh, before the whole thing was covered in ash, if those panels were somehow removable or movable, if they were not. I think these are painted on stone. Yeah, I guess they are, like aren't masonry. they? Yeah, but I was wondering if like the stone panel could be moved, but that wouldn't really make sense to do that, would it? Well, the one with the duck and the one with the rooster are on the same panel. Mm-hmm. You can tell just from the paint. So... They yeah. Would, so if you turn one of them or you turn the other one upside down. Yeah, that's true. One would always be upside so. down. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, we're going to duck out of this section. Oh, and boy. Go to, on to the next one <laughs> and we'll fish up another article for you. <laughs> They're getting worse, worse and worse as you go. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that's it for this one. Uh, what would uh, send us send us an email? What do you want to? What ancient foods have you heard of that you want to eat? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff we have that they would think is crazy, probably. Yeah, there's almost nothing I would want to eat, but I would definitely try everything once. That's not true. I've always, I've always wanted to be back in like an old, Viking. you know, like like yeah, like yeah. something really old where I've just got this huge beard, which it would have to be fiction because I don't have a huge beard or the ability to grow one. <laughs> but I want like like a hunk of meat juicing down my beard while I'm drinking mead. That's like, you know, I know I should just go to a renaissance fair, but still. You should. Yeah. You still won't have the beard part, but <laughs> if you want grease to drip down your chin, <laughs> like I'm sure we can make that happen. Right. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a second with segment three. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the Archaeology Show podcast. <laughs> and we're going to talk about now, I mean, we're basically talking about an, an Iron Age site in uh, Britain, in England, but we're really talking about visiting sites like this, right? Rachel and I went to Scotland uh, a number of years ago, a few years ago, three or four years ago, and we were there for an archaeology conference, but we rented a car and drove all the way around Scotland in the course of about five days prior to the conference and saw lots of sites, lots of unattended sites, I might say, I might add, like castles and things like that, that... I mean, there may have been somebody at like a gatehouse or in the front or something, but basically you're left to your own devices to walk yeah, around these just things. walk through them, do whatever you want. And it's no different here. There's a 2,000-year-old Iron Age. So the site is, I guess, in Wales because it's Welsh, uh, but it's called Castell, and that's C-A-S-T-E-L-L. We'll link to this in the show notes, of course. Uh, Henley's, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of that right, but it's an Iron Age village in the Welsh Pembrokeshire Coast National Park um, says it was once home to a wealthy family that included a community of up to 100 people who worked together to produce food and materials 2,000 years ago. First off, if there was a wealthy family there, there was very little working together. Probably a lot of people worked for that family to provide them with what they needed. But that being said... uh, Yeah, but 100 people were working together to keep 100 people alive, too. Yeah. So, you know. There's that part of it. Right. Um, this is what they, you might hear the word hill fort if you talk about a lot of Iron Age sites in the UK. Uh, hill forts were just kind of a thing, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're defensible positions. They were really just kind of villages, but they call them hill forts most of the time. This one was consisted of four roundhouses, and these have been reconstructed. So you can actually go there and see the reconstructions and walk around this thing of these reconstructed roundhouses. They're circular structures with conical roofs. Uh, they're made of wood and straw. And and archaeologists and researchers built these structures using the same materials or the same type of materials that villagers would have used during what's called the Iron Age. And again, the Iron Age uh, in this case was 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact span of the Iron Age, but it's basically 
I mean, ages are named after the primary, I, I guess, discovery and thing that transformed society. So in Britain, you have a lot of smaller ages, really, in smaller time periods. But in general, you're going to talk stone, bronze, iron, mm-hmm. right, um, as things were discovered. Isn't it crazy that the last story we talked about in Pompeii was the exact same time period? Yeah. And that civilization was so much further along. Yeah. Okay, sorry, my brain went there and yeah. I had to just like get that thought out. But It is pretty yeah. crazy. Well, and if you look at 2,000 years ago in the Amazon or North, you know, America, North America or something very like different, that, very yeah. different things. But we had definitely cities and things going on. It was just different types, yeah. different things happening. So yep. anyway, these researchers uh, back a few years ago, 2018, 2019, they were doing some more research, doing some things and made a discovery. Before we talk about that, though, this reconstruction has been standing, it says in the article, for about 30 years. And countless tourists a year visit them. 6,000 school children per year, they mm-hmm. say. It provides a, a unique opportunity for researchers as well because you just don't have reconstructions like this. Right? right. They've used all the evidence. They've put it back together and it just gives you a, a really good picture of what, what life looked like back then and what it was like. But as they were looking at some of the materials in the decay over time and starting to do some excavations, which they haven't done in decades, mm-hmm. they uncovered plastic. Yeah. And they said over 2000 plastic items and the journal article is actually from antiquity. So we're probably, that's an art our journal I actually have access to. So we'll probably link to that as well, mm-hmm. even though you might not have access to it, but some archaeologists on here might. However, they said the site is well-maintained and cleaned and the plastic they found are small plastic remnants of activity by visitors. And it says here too, children routinely eating lunches in one of the structures are able to hide beneath benches in dark corners of the roundhouses. So even though you might think that you're cleaning something up, a small piece of plastic from a piece of something from lunch, it just gets hidden in the corner and eventually buried because it's all dirt, dirt floors and things like that. And a lot of candy bars. If you look at the picture, (laughs) like I see a Snickers for sure. What looks like Milky Way, Uh, Mars bar, maybe. I mean, I don't know if this is a commentary on what British parents are giving their kids for lunch, (laughs) but. Or what, okay, what all school children want to eat, even if their parents don't give it to them, kids get their hands on candy bars. You're on a field trip. They gave you (laughs) some money. Yeah. Like here, buy a nutritious lunch. And they're like, great, I'm going to get a Snickers. (laughs) Yeah. So. No, that's crazy though. Yeah, uh, it says multitude of sack lunches eaten in one of the roundhouses. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wanted to bring this up because even if you can't really see anything, even if maybe there's no trash cans or something like that, but even if you can't see any other trash around or or maybe the site is, I don't know, incredibly dirty, just don't leave your own stuff because your impacts on the site are long lasting. And people would walk into this because it said it was well cleaned and maintained and they probably wouldn't see anything and think, well, this is a... Uh, some people might even think this is a perfectly preserved example of something from 2000 years ago, even though that's impossible because of the materials, mm-hmm. but not not really knowing that it was reconstructed three decades ago. But you look at it and you're just like, this isn't just a tourist attraction. This is something to learn from. This is an actual archaeological site. This was reconstructed on top of an actual site in the site's location using similar materials from the landscape. So... I'm not saying it's like a holy place by any means, but you have to respect it by just picking up your trash and teaching your kids yeah. to do the same thing. Yeah. Like we've all had that experience where you're sitting on a bench on a windy day and the wind picks up the trash and just blows it away. Right. Right. And it, I know it is so easy to just 
be like, well, I'm not chasing that down. That's going to be a <laughs> pain in the butt. I'm not running after it. Not happening. Yeah. But reading an article like this makes me realize that it is 100% worth it to just get up and go chase down that mm-hmm. piece of trash. Just find it. Shove it in your pocket. Throw it away later. Because the impact of all this plastic on the site is it's amazing. It's just I had no idea that 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 would because these are parks. They, you know, people generally pick up after themselves in parks. And in this case, it's, well, children who are not great at picking up after themselves sometimes, but also you just can't catch everything. And right. if we all just work a little harder, you know. Now, here's <laughs> the irony of the whole situation. There's two pieces of dramatic irony here. <laughs> oh. Archaeologists <laughs> only know what we know about the past because people were oh, bad about cleaning up after themselves. we leave our trash behind. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I always go back to when we hiked around Chaco Canyon uh, in, the, in New Mexico mm-hmm. and just the piles of ceramic pot sherds yeah. that we were walking on. I mean, the trails were littered. Like covered in them. Littered with them. They're yeah. crunching beneath your feet. <laughs> we have so much that nobody cares anymore. We can't yeah. learn anymore from them. There's no reason to, to clear put them it all in a museum, mm-hmm. you know, lockbox somewhere. They're just literally everywhere. And I say don't pick them up because they want other people to have that experience. Mm-hmm. But this, I mean, Chaco was was really important for a few hundred years in the whole Chacoan landscape, they call it. And it was also collapsed pretty severely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about 1180 or something like that, or 1150, give or take. Yep. And so it's been a thousand years. It's been a thousand years and there's still that much sitting on the ground. Yep. And that trash is now artifacts. So it is, <laughs> it is a bit of a dichotomy yeah. with the whole like, Trash is good when it's ancient. Trash is bad when it's modern. <laughs> and as a quick aside, if you're listening to this, uh, coming out soon on the Archaeology Podcast Network, if you're in the future, it's already out, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash sitebytes to hear the introduction to a new series. Again, if you're listening to this in real time, it's a new series coming out very soon in 2020. And it's probably already out for most of our listeners, though. But it's by host of the Life and Ruins podcast, one of the hosts of the Life and Ruins podcast, Carlton Gover, and it's called Sight Bites. And the first season, which is five episodes, is all about Chaco Canyon. Yeah, if you guys thought that we could just like pull dates about Chaco, you know, out of nowhere. I mean, no, no, it's because we've been editing. Those I mean, episodes. I am an archaeologist. We've both <laughs> been to Chaco Canyon. You're an archaeologist too, oh, so I, yes. I can pull some Chaco knowledge out of my brain pan. Oh, please, you yeah. could. And pull 1100 out of your butt until could. you just edited that episode. Nah, I could totally do that. Well, I certainly couldn't have. Yeah. I, anyway. I'm fascinated by the supernova pictograph, which is there, which I know dates to about uh, 1150 or so AD. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. point is that's the first dramatic piece of information we have here. The second piece of irony we have is this plastic, and they even mention it in the article. Like, if archaeologists 500 years from now, or even 100 years from now, or 200 years from now, we're digging back into this site, doing what these guys were doing, uh, trying to trying to look at decay and things like that, they would find examples of plastic from this time period. Mm-hmm. Even if we put a stop to this right now, there's going to be a lens, because these guys didn't re-excavate the whole entire thing. There's definitely plastic they didn't find. Right. And trash that they didn't find that will still be there in a couple hundred years, because your Snickers wrapper is not going anywhere for several hundred years, if not several thousand years. I don't know how often, you know, how long that kind of plastic takes to degrade. But Well, how about the Godzilla lunchbox? I mean, I mean come on. It says yeah. copyright 1998 on it. Put that thing on eBay. (laughs) Somebody's going to want it. Anyway, that's what I'm talking about. Our trash these days have 
really, really distinct patterns and things and, and a pretty dateable past and not, mm-hmm. not, not to mention anything produced after, uh, what is the year when copyright dates had to be on there? Oh yeah. It was in the seventies, I Something think 60s like that. or seventies. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anything post that, if there, if that fragment still exists, it has a date on it. Yeah. And that's amazing for archaeologists. I would love to be an archaeologist of the early, you know, studying the early 21st century in 500 years mm-hmm. because everything's datable. Yeah. <laughs> so, true story. But you're still trying to reconstruct who was there, even though, and it, you might be thinking, well, can't I just watch like a documentary or look at historical resources because it's 500 years from now? Well, first off, I don't know what's going to happen between now and 500 years from now. Who knows? Society may have collapsed by then and we've rebuilt it back up. And now we have archaeologists again that are studying that time period in history because that has literally happened across the planet hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't it happen again now? Yeah. And also, we never fully get the real picture of like daily life. That's what archaeologists really uncover is daily life. Like we mentioned in the last two articles was what does daily life look like? We have movies that are fictitious representations of daily life. We have documentaries, which again, capture daily life through a lens of someone else's brain and what they wanted to put in the documentary. It's not exactly hyper accurate. It's, it's still put through somebody's bias. So the only way that we really have a snapshot of daily life in any area is to look at the trash because that's the stuff people throw away. That's the stuff they didn't think was super important. That's the stuff they didn't chase down because it blew away in the wind, but that's their daily life, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that people don't write about in their diaries. They don't say I had a Snickers bar at an Iron Age hill fort. They say I visited an Iron Age hill fort and we don't know if you ate a Snickers bar or what you had, you know? So it's just interesting to know that. Yeah. I think, I think the, the issue I have with that is that we don't we can find out about daily life without damaging the environment. You know what I mean? Or damaging oh, yeah. this environment. I'm not saying leave your trash. <laughs> like like finding out about daily life, that's great. And like there's definitely a place and a time for that kind of stuff to be. But I just this is a really pristine archaeological site that has been reconstructed for people to experience and this trash and 30 years of people visiting it is having a bigger impact than I think they realized or thought that it would, which is just a whole other, adds a whole other layer to the site, I suppose. Looking at it from an archaeological perspective, if you didn't know 6,000 school children a year visited this site, you could probably discover that through the trash. True. Because A, children are, I would I would hope to think, more likely to leave trash because they're just less responsible because they're children. Yeah, and but then again, adults suck too. I know they actually. It says here that there's a, there's some role playing that goes on there, and there's people that dress up in in costume like the Demite tribe mm. that once inhabited that part of Wales, and they ha- they found like the face paint containers that the adults who are dressing up <laughs> are using. So like it's not all the kids; it's right. it's both. But right. anyway, well. Point is, I feel like uh, any archaeologist worth their salt 500 years from now would have been able to determine that the site is visited, I wouldn't say primarily by children, but more children had visited the site than less. Mm -hmm. Knowing full well family structures and schools and things like that, they could Mm -hmm. probably determine why, but that would be something they could determine. So again, don't leave your trash, but we will be able to discover some stuff about that. And there's lots of people, there's big, big, huge, long running projects that are actually digging in landfills Yeah, that, that are trying to figure out, uh, you know, well, 
what can we learn from the daily lives of people just from their trash and their landfills right now? Because to be honest, we still don't know a lot about daily life of average your average neighbor or human being. You can't see inside their house. You True. don't know what's going on behind the scenes. What does their daily life look like? We're, we're closed books to most people, I mean, even people that live right next door to you. How many news articles do you see about the person who did something crazy or whatever, and then they go into their house and discover some crazy thing, and the neighbors are like, oh, he was so quiet. I did had no idea, <laughs> you know? So True, true, I mean, true. if you've ever seen hoarders on whatever channel that's on, I imagine all that hoarding is pretty hidden from most people. Yeah. And that's an extreme example, but the point is, we don't have a lot of evidence about how people live and how they truly live when they're by themselves, mm-hmm. you know, or just their families or something like that. So this is one way archaeologists can find that out. Again, don't leave your trash, but <laughs> I know I, do, I feel like you keep coming back around like trash is good. I know. It's not. It's like, fine if it's where it's supposed to be, like in landfills yeah. and trash cans and places like that. But when you go to an archaeological site, just know that that candy wrapper that blows away in the wind, it's going to have an impact. Right. But if you're at Chaco Canyon, don't run after it if you're up on one of the hillsides because you will fall to your death. <laughs> so be careful about that. Don't retrieve it if it'll yeah. cause you know, injury. Yeah. Or if you like at the Grand Canyon, don't <laughs> jump for it. So. Don't, don't do that. All right. Well, that's it. We're going to do more episodes like this because there's actually a lot of stuff in the news these days and people are doing things. Despite the lack of a field season last summer, I'm thinking that the the news cycle is going to be really hit hard from 2020's lack of a field season in most of the world in about a year or two because that's how long it takes to process results a lot. So I think the 2022-2023 news cycle for archaeology is going to be pretty light because there's going to be fewer articles that were published mm-hmm. just because uh, unless people had a chance to go dig into some of their old stuff and write some of those more in-depth articles that they hadn't been able to write before. But as far as new things go, I would just imagine that that cycle is going to be hit hard by the, the lack of a field season in 2020. Mm-hmm. So probably, but we will see. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And if you f- come across an interesting news article you want us to talk about, feel free to send us our way. Chris at archaeology network.com. And you can find us on Facebook at ArcPodNet. You can find us on Instagram at ArcPodNet, and you can find us on Twitter at ArcPodNet. So feel free to send something, tag me or not. I'll see it either way, and we will see you next time. And thanks to Rachel for talking about news articles. Absolutely. I love talking about archaeology. Nice. (laughs) See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.